before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now on with the show. My guest on this episode of the Grant Williams podcast is my friend Danielle DiMartino Booth. Danielle's superb book, Fed Up, opens so many people's eyes to not only how the Federal Reserve works, but also the imperfections of both the institution itself and those charged with the stewardship of the economy. Now, with the importance of the Fed seemingly growing by the day, as what's been, let's face it, four decades of essentially one-way policy decisions come to their inevitable climax, what better time to chat with Danielle to handicap the likelihood of Jay Powell's reappointment as Fed Chair and Lael Brainerd's chances of replacing him, to pick apart the recent revelations about what was, at the very best, inappropriate activity in the personal trading accounts of Messrs Kaplan, Clarida, Rosengren and Powell, and to assess the box in which the central bank finds itself and the options available as they frantically search for a solution. There's so much in this conversation for you to unpack, and I guess I'd better let you get started. So please, enjoy my conversation with Danielle DiMartino Booth. Danielle, so good to see you. It's been a long time since we've seen each other in person, but it's nice to see you virtually with a real background behind you, no less. Real background. I'm not going to fade away. None of that virtual nonsense. (laughs) Yeah, it's good to see you too, Grant. We're going to have to figure... Sometime in Vegas in 2022. Can we just have a, can we have a virtual theoretical plan? Vegas in 2022. I love that idea. I love that idea. Well, you know, this is the perfect time for you and I to chat because uppermost in everybody's mind right now is the sweet spot for you. Everyone is focusing on the Fed. Everyone's looking at all the kind of Machiavellian moves behind the scenes and betting odds and all kinds of stuff. And, And we'll, I think we'll come back to the, you know, the kind of quote unquote insider trading stuff a little later on. So I think it's worth talking about, but but most importantly, I think. It's all all interlinked. Yeah. That's linked too. Exactly right. And and that's why I'm just so overjoyed to have this chance to talk to you of all people, because you have a much better inside track on most of the people out there commenting on this stuff, including me. So let's start with, I guess, the top job, because there's obviously an awful lot of talk. There's an awful lot of money being bet on various outcomes in this. How do you see the whole Powell renomination thing? And then let's pick apart all the bits that you think are important to it. So I think um, I think what we need to realize is that when Janet Yellen came out publicly on September the 12th and said, I'm putting my weight behind Powell, and she she put a rumor out several weeks before that. So his probability started to rise. But on mm-hmm. September the 12th, when she made the formal announcement on predictit.org, uh, his probability rose to 92%. And that's where it peaked on September the 12th. So fast forward, you know, it's come down, you know, the day that Lael Brainerd leaked his, his financials to some left-wing whatever organization, he fell down as low, I think, as 60%. 60s in the 60s, yeah. yeah. So, But it was 6-0. Uh, he has since popped back up as high as 78. He's at 71% today uh, as we speak because news came out that not only had had President Biden invited Powell up to the Hill, he subsequently had invited Lael Brainerd up to the Hill for an interview. So that's why he's come off of his kind of 75, 78 percentage mm-hmm. down to 71%. Um, but the reason he stays as high as he is 
is pretty critical to the conversation if you're talking about who is truly going to become chair. And that's because he's confirmable. And that's what I think the media is missing, because if you look at Brainerd, you know, she peaked out. I think she peaked out at three zero or three two thirty two percent. Maybe she broke 30 percent, but she's been hovering in the 20. She's at twenty nine percent maybe today. Mm -hmm. But she's been hovering in the 20s for one critical reason, you know, beyond Sherry Brown, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren. She's not confirmable. They're not going the, the same as Omarova was not, you know, going to be part of the equation, your vast majority of moderate Democrats, forget Republicans, that's they're not even part of the discussion, but your vast majority of moderate Democrats in America are not willing to sign on to some dream team that's going to implement socialism in America via negative interest rates. Maybe Kenneth Rogoff could come in for the party and penalize people for holding, for holding cash and use a central bank digital currency to get to the unbanked have all all treasuries cleared uh, through a clearinghouse, uh, use a central bank digital currency so that if there's a run, everybody goes straight to the Fed and you thereby form a conduit through which to deliver universal basic income, which would Mm -hmm. be socialism in America. That's why her that's why she can't break north of 30 percent because she's not confirmable. And that's why Powell Powell's numbers remain as high as they are but they're also not as high as they necessarily should be. And the doubt that lingers is why whenever you see anything come up about, you know, Powell at risk and or debt ceiling at risk, that's the only thing that markets react to. Markets Mm -hmm. are at all time highs, give or take, knowing that we're going to into an earnings recession. I mean, that's like, it's, you know, if markets price in the future, that's their job. The stock market is priced in an earnings recession and it's moved past that. It's like, okay, fine, we'll deal with it when it comes. It doesn't matter as long as the liquidity continues to get pumped out, but we're not also at risk of negative interest rates or doing something wacky like the Europeans or the Japanese and killing the conventional banking system. And so that's why markets are keying off of two things right now. And that's debt ceiling and who's going to be running the Fed. And now we're down to four vacant positions. And it's becoming increasingly apparent that the Biden administration, the only word that I can use is paralyzed because they they really don't know what to do. They don't know if they can, you know, engage engage in another battle with the progressives because they want so badly for this other infrastructure, social spending bill to go through. So they're trying to pick and choose their battles. But you know, we were told publicly, the White House released a uh, released publicly that by Labor Day, we will have announced who will be chair and vice chair nominees. And I don't think it's Labor Day anymore. Right. Well, let's talk about Brainerd for a second, because I totally understand what you're saying about her not being confirmable for all those reasons. But, you know, to me, unlike Supreme Court justices, there is enough technicality around central bank head appointees that all the things you talk about, which I agree with you 100% on, I don't know how many uh, voting members understand the transmission mechanisms of what you've spoken about. And so I wonder if Brainerd is possibly confirmable if you get the right media narrative that sways some of these people who are going to vote for her. Is that a possibility or do you think it's a flat out zero chance at this point? I, 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 think, it's, I, I, I think it's a flat out zero chance, but for an ironic reason. Okay. And I think had Omarova not 
gotten the massive amount of media that she did in a negative way that that most people in Congress and their aides wouldn't have a blueprint with which to guide their bosses to argue against Brainerd. It's not that they understand the intricacies and the arcaneness of central clearing of treasuries and CBDCs. And it's, it's not that it's, it's that they've already had a, a test trial by, by trying to slay somebody else in the media who very explicitly laid out exactly how a CBDC would be implemented. Mm-hmm. You know, all for all transmission mechanism. I mean, it's, it's that they've already done the homework. They don't, they're taking the test for the second time. And I'm speaking in terms of right. aides of, 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 of the members of Senate, the members of the committee, is that they've already gone through the exercise. So what happens to these four seats and what happens to Brainerd? If that's the case, she gets put up for another role or how does this happen? Because well, it's tough yeah. to kind of just shut her out completely. This is a really good question, and it's a really critical question, because if you look at the same Predict It, right next to PredictIt.com's great big, you know, this is who might or might not be Fed chair, there's a little there's a little square to the right that has the probability of being confirmed as vice chair of supervision. And Brainerd is hovering around 61%. Mm-hmm. In other words, there's even doubt because of the strength of the U.S. lobby, uh, the U.S. banking lobby, the conventional banking system lobby, because even if you just push through with the next round of of Fed reforms, of Fed intrusion into short rate markets, you've I mean, you've got the reverse repo facility that basically we know has been unleashed, unhinged. There's no ceiling. They'll they'll still they'll raise the ceiling if need be. You've got the standing repo facility as well. That's been institutionalized. The next step down the road is central clearing of treasuries, which even though it's an unprofitable line of business for the primary brokers, those 17, 19 mm-hmm. um, big banks that interact directly with the Federal Reserve and the open market operations, they don't necessarily want to be factored out of that equation via central clearing of treasuries. And that's something that the group of 30 has already put a white paper out on, authored by Timothy Geithner, of all people, thank you, that has already endorsed moving ahead with that. So we don't have another March 2020 moment when the long bond freezes in trading in Asia overnight. Uh, So, But the banks are already focused on this next step to say nothing of central bank digital currency. So that's why I think her odds of even being renominated as vice chair are potentially at risk. And I think that you would have to give that to Elizabeth Warren as at least a consolation prize. And I recently published uh, something called Game of Drones. I'm happy for you to share it with your premium whoever okay, um, that, that actually goes through why Lael Brainerd might not want the consolation prize to begin with. We have to remember that she is half of a very political couple in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Her husband, who does not share the last her, the, the same last name she does, is one of Biden's top advisors on China. So he's already got a great position in this administration. But you have to ask yourself, because she publicly contributed to Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016. Yep. And it was a very controversial moment at that time inside the Fed that she did that. That there was some, she was ostracized to a certain extent at that moment, because at least when I was there for nine years, that was a huge no-no. You never gave to public, 
I mean, that you, you are an apolitical institution. It's written. It's the law. It's the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. You're independent and apolitical. You sure as hell don't make political contributions. But the game plan was for Hillary to sweep, for Hillary to win president, for, for the Democrats to sweep Congress, for Ken Rogoff to be installed as head of, 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 of the Federal Reserve, and for Lael Brainerd to be put in as Treasury Secretary. That was always the game plan. So there was a lot of, of, of horse trading going around when Biden first took the presidency and they said, OK, Brainerd's going to get her her due finally, dot, dot, dot. So she's finally going to get what is owed to her and she's going to get the nod for Treasury secretary. And that was, you know, it was a little controversial, but her name was definitely in the running. So was Jamie Dimon's. That was yeah. equally controversial. And here out of left field, we get a labor economist who whose eyes used to roll into the back of her head in congressional testimony when she was questioned about market functionality and banking supervision and regulation. So here we get we get Janet Yellen instead, who, by the way, does not like Lael Brainerd, which is a very complicating factor because we're talking about the prince. Right. We're, we're rewriting Machiavelli here. Yeah, exactly right. In an arcane institution. So then she gets passed over twice. So do you really think she's going to get passed over a third time? I mean, why is Lael Brainerd playing such nasty hardball if she didn't want to get the consolation? I don't think she wants to be vice chair of anything after being, you know, looked over twice, passed over twice for Treasury Secretary. And, you know, there, there are some details here. I'm not divulging anything that's not public, Grant, but I think it's relevant. OK, right, right, right. I've spoken with my boss, Richard Fisher. He's in my former boss. He's on the record. He sometimes calls me and makes requests that make it seem as if he's still my boss, by the way. Anyway, <laughs> um, but I've, I've spoken to Richard directly. You know, he explained to me that when he was, you know, in his position as president of the Dallas Fed, that somebody at the Federal Reserve Board had to sign off on his financials every year. And by the way, the new rules that have been imposed by the Federal Reserve are the identical rules that I had to adhere to with class one clearance and that Richard had to adhere to as a president. So they're not new. They're the ones that were in place when I was at the Fed. Right. Is a long story short. So there's nothing new here. What's new is the fact that other that, that presidents have been getting away with breaking the old rules for what appear to be years now. Well, what's crucial here and a matter of public record is the person who's, who used to sign off on Richard's financials as the chair of a committee at the Federal Reserve Board in Washington, D.C., the current chair is Lael Brainerd. Right. So, look, that, that, that brings us to these to this recent disclosures, let's call them, instead of leaks. Let's be generous for now. Okay, fine. Let's call um, them disclosures. Yeah, let's call them disclosures. Well, they, 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 um, are, they are matters of public record. The right, way right. Clarida's and Powell's were released, they 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 they're they're vastly different than Rosengren and Kaplan. If we can at agreed. least draw that line of distinction, yeah, agreed. I think that's a, that's a fair distinction to make. So so let's talk about that because look, it, this to me falls into one of those buckets that even if technically you've done nothing wrong, you know you shouldn't be doing what you're doing, right? This is another. I can get away with this. The question is, should you? No, you shouldn't. You absolutely shouldn't. So, in so, a year that you're saving the world, right? Exactly right. So, so just talk about your reaction when you read about that, and and what the the bigger 
message of that is I, I keep always go back to Ben Hunt's thing. Why am I reading this? Why now? So, so let's talk about why all this stuff happens to be coming out exactly when it does. It's coming out right now because Lael Brainerd wants to be chair. Okay. That's pretty simple. Um, it's relevance is of monumental import. We have to remember that other countries are a little bit more tuned into, Hey, who's the bad guy that's making the 1% rich and the other 90% not so rich. I mean, the French, you know, they stormed the Banque de France, you know, with like torches. So there are other countries that are a little more tuned in to what their central banks are and are not doing for everybody else, dot, dot, dot. So I think to see the damning revelations, and by the way, Kaplan and Rosegren were like on opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of the amounts of money being traded. Uh, and the fact that there were individual stocks being traded in the case of, of, of Kaplan. And I was I've always been kind of a fan of his hawkishness. But I mean, the irony of his being hawkishness and looking back at this, it's all very Fed credibility has been decimated. And I think there's an even more important question that people in the media have either let go or or don't care about or don't realize. And that's, you know. Let's talk about Randy Quarles. Let's talk about Rich Clarida. Let's talk about the fact that 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 Randy Quarles is he's a very he's a very spiritual man. He's a staunch Mormon. And I think he stepped away from his position early. This is pure speculation. Boy, it's got good grounding. I think he stepped away from his position as head of supervision earlier than it was. Due to, yeah. due to expire Halloween, to, to send a signal to say, you know what, Jay Powell's quote unquote insider trading left 32% of upside on the table. So if insider trading was going to be his day job after he leaves the Fed, he's not getting hired at all. Nobody on Wall Street's taking him. He's not the next Milken. It ain't happening if you're leaving 32% upside on the table. I'm sorry, what a moron. If that's the goal in spider trading. Rich Claret is a whole different story, but let's let's stick with Quarles for a minute. So I think Quarles stepped away to say, Brainerd, if you want to play this game and you're trying to slay somebody who, who is a man of integrity, even though some of the phone calls he made right before Judy Shelton's nomination is mm-hmm. a different story. I digress. I'm upset about that. We don't know what the answer is, but I do I do think those questions should be asked why he's making zillions of phone calls right before her name comes up for vote. I'm a friend of Judy's full disclosure. That being said, I think when it comes to his financials and when it comes to his personal wealth, remember he was worth a hundred million dollars when he accepted position. He's got a private equity background. He doesn't need a pension for life. He doesn't need the Fed's benefits. He truly was serving his country. And once you factor that in, I think that that's why Quarles stepped aside early and said, you know what, Biden, nominate Powell as chair, nominate Brainerd as vice chair. I've moved out of the way. The position is open. Right. right. And then Biden calls Brainerd up to the Hill for an interview as if to say, you know what, Quarles, I've heard you. I'm ignoring your message. So what what does Quarles do? He says, I'm leaving. I'm leaving early. Now do you hear me, Biden? Mm -hmm. You've got your, you're putting yourself behind the wrong horse. 
The country does not need to go down the path or even be able to be facilitated to go down the path to socialism. That's not what America is. And it never should be what America is. So get your head screwed on straight and focus on Powell or somebody else, but not her. I'm resigning early. So I think that we need to put a special place in the history books for the integrity of Randy Quarles and have that not just be a footnote in this entire episode that we're watching that makes the days of Geithner and Richard Fisher and Charlie Plosser rolling around on the floor in 2008, beating the shit out of each other, look like a walk in the park. I hear you. And then you've got Clarita, who is locked up in the basement, shackled. He's got a, a gag over his mouth. He wrote the book on inflation expectations, dictating monetary policy. They clearly cannot let him in front of a microphone or make a speech or anything until his term is finished. Because if he opens his mouth, he says, well, we should be tightening, not tapering. That's yeah. it. That's his. That's the beginning and the end of his speech. We should be tightening, not tapering, according to, oh, I don't know, my life's work, give or take. So he's in the basement. My question is, why didn't he resign? Why did Kaplan and Rosengren have to go when the, the level and the monetary, when the money involved, and God knows I'm, how many bridges have I burned since I started this chat with you like 20 minutes ago? <laughs> I'm about to burn a big one with, with Rich Clarida. But if Rosengren, let's just say, had to step down, why didn't Clarida have to step down unless that would have potentially forced, in theory, Powell to step down? Because that's the well, only or, explanation I can come up with. Or Clarida's much more dangerous outside the basement, unshackled and being able to say what he wants to say, right? Because he's he's going to get asked if he's no longer at the Fed. People are going to want to know what he thinks still. And, and he's going to tell them. He is, and he's going to tell them. So but I don't know, but term, you know, you his said, term's almost up. Right. But, but you said something that, that, that really struck me because obviously in your illustrious past, you have also been a journalist, right? And you, and you talk there about the questions the media aren't asking. And it struck a call with me because this this whole Federal Reserve stuff, right? There was a time in yours and my lifetimes when no one really knew who the chairman of the Federal Reserve was until Alan Greenspan came around. It was a name that some people knew, and then everybody suddenly knew who they were. With your kind of media hat on, what do you make of all the stuff that's going on now? Because the job's become so important now that it attracts a lot more of exactly what we've just described, this political backstabbing, this jockeying for position, this favoritism, all this stuff. What is the thread as a journalist that you'd want to pick at and follow to try and make a greater understanding of really the public as to what's going on and how important it is? Well, I think the biggest aspect that is not two things, A, that nobody's probing Powell about all those phone calls. I think that that's glaring. And I'm talking about Judy Shelton and the fact that the entire economics community set out to destroy the reputation of somebody who's done some great research in her career on sound and disciplined monetary policymaking. Why is the institution so afraid of even somebody who begins to think outside the box? Why mm -hmm. does group think that critical at the Federal Reserve that's supposed to be an independent apolitical institution? In the here and now, why is the media, because they'll talk all about the Virginia governor and how close those polls are and neck and neck. Why isn't anybody talking about Jay Powell's at 71% today, Lael Brainerd's at 29%. You could drive a Mack truck through that. She's not confirmable. Why isn't anybody talking about the polling surrounding these two individuals if it's really critical when you're talking about 
somebody truly in politics, but they're more political. Brainerd and Powell, this is much more political than Virginia. I'm sorry to say, but it is at right. this point because they're the ones they're they're the ones with the keys to the printing press. So why isn't the media talking about the polling surrounding these two individuals, which would point out that the media is wasting a hell of a lot of ink talking about Lael Brainerd and why she should be Fed chair, even though she's not confirmable. It's a moot point. Move on. But the right. media is not treating it this way. They're not treating it as confirmable versus not confirmable. Well, let me ask you this, because I had a conversation with uh, Jim Bianco recently, a mutual friend of ours, and um, I was talking about some conversations I'd had with people and this idea that the, the Federal Reserve Board is perhaps more important these days than the Supreme Court to stuff if you're, if you're an administration. And obviously, there's four empty slots. And Jim kind of countered and said, look, it doesn't matter. Everybody does what the chairman says. And you don't tend to get split votes. It's always, you know, maybe there's one dissenter. And, and look, history says that he's right. And that, that tends to be the way these things go. But is that changing, do you think? Is the Federal Reserve and stuffing the board with dovish members or politically, members who lean one way politically, is that becoming more important? Is that something that's happening, do you think? So there's a little bit of history involved here with this question. In 1996, this is prior to Volcker and mutiny and his damn near being ousted by his board, which is not a matter of public record. In 1996, the transcripts were introduced with a five-year lag. Mm -hmm. In 1996, all the members of the board became very cordial. Dissenting among board members became a no-no. We've had three since then. Woo! The last one was like in 2002, Mark Olson. Yay! Because he's watching, right? He's watching Fannie Mae. He's in Washington, D.C. He's a Washington, D.C. native. He knows the subprime market's like a ticking time bomb. He knows that there's something going wrong. And he's so, but that's the last time that we've had a dissent ever since they've started writing down what people say. And by the way, that's redacted too. You're not, you, right. you're, you're yep. never going to read about Geithner and, and, and Fisher in a fist fight. But, you know, I exaggerate, but these things really did happen in sure. 2008 and 2009. It really was controversial when I was inside that the Fed was going to cross the Rubicon and buy mortgage-backed securities and introduce credit easing. And at the time, we were like, corporate bonds, hell no. That was that was institutional yep. what? Municipal bonds, for God's sake, no. Of course not. But put that in context of what we saw in March of 2020. Regardless, I digress. So we haven't really seen governor's dissent. Dissenting became the purview of the maverick Federal Reserve District Bank presidents. I mean, we remember Tom Honig. I mean, he was like dissent, dissent, dissent into an echo chamber because yeah, why bother? Yeah, because to Jim's point, it only matters. And then there was the evening of the Kathleen Hayes, Christopher Waller interview. And Christopher Waller, who, you know, they offered the position on the board, um, you know, to his boss, who did not accept it. He said, no, I'm, I'm kind of happy over here in Richmond. I, I like to drop bombs after FOMC meetings. I don't want to be on the board. A lot of responsibility. Why don't you take my second hand man? Why don't you take Chris Waller, the director of research, who's been, by the way, you know, feeding me all of my intel and, you know, thinking right, right, right alongside me this entire time. So Bullard says no to the board position. And we get Waller nominated with Shelton. Only Waller gets in. 
So you have this bombshell of a night. And I see who she's interviewing. I love Kathleen. We're good friends. I often unmute her. I unmute my Bloomberg and I'm listening. And he's like, yeah, housing's white hot. We don't have any business doing mortgage-backed security QE. And I'm like <laughs> spitting out my wine. You know, it's, it's nighttime. It's CNBC Asia. And I'm like, what did he just say? He's a board member. He's a board member and he's talking like a dissenting board member. And that's a big yeah. old no, no. You do not come out and say housing is white hot and we should not be involved in mortgage-backed security QE, period, end. And, you know, yet here we are. We haven't exactly seen him dissent. He could have dissented when they voted the taper in and said, you know, let's keep the 80 on the Treasury side. Let's jettison the mortgage-backed securities, the damage we're doing to first-time homebuyers. He still didn't dissent to Jim's point. So, you know, the answer is, I don't know. I, I, w- I would think that the, the way things have been done will continue to be how they're done unless mm-hmm. you can br- truly have an outside thinker confirmed. And I think that would be a really difficult thing to do because right now you've got Manchin and others saying that inflation's running wild and monetary policy is too tight. And you're like, wait a minute, is that, wait, did I, is that a politician who said that? Because politicians never say that monetary policy is nope. too tight. No, 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 it's, no, no, not, no. it's not in their DNA, right? So if push comes to shove, they'll all go back to saying monetary policy needs to be loose. All of them. They'll all vote in whatever needs to be voted in. They'll all confirm whoever's going to keep the printing press run. But they want to draw the line at negative interest rates and socialism. And that's the message that we're getting today. But to answer Jim's question, I have no idea. I would love to see an era where dissent could be reintroduced among or board members, because I think it would change the way decisions were made. I don't think that the moment, you know, the, 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 the moment fed up opens my book opens. I'm looking at it right here. I don't think that the opening scene of fed up would have been Ben Bernanke chewing on Richard Fisher ears and, and Richard Fisher changing his mind about going to the zero bound on December the 14th, 2008. And then Fisher changing his vote. Yeah. And that's yeah. what happened. So I think until you get dissent on the board to join. And by the way, Rosengren would have joined. Rosengren would have joined Waller. Rosengren would have joined the other. Two. You would have had the potential for a quadruple dissent in 2022 when the voting rotation changed because right. there would have been three. Now there's just two. There's just two central bank uh, district uh, presidents who are coming in who are hawks to replace Uber doves. Goodbye, Evans. Yep. Goodbye, Daly. Adios. Fare thee well. Go write a white paper. So, um, but you would have had the potential for a quadruple descent, which would have been really revolutionary. I was kind of excited. I was I was perking up. I was like, whoa, Danielle's liking the Fed again. We've got we've got one governor and three, you know, three dis- three presidents. Let's go. Let's descend. Let's get this party started. I don't know. But that's but that, you know, it's interesting that that, that that could happen at arguably the worst time for that to happen in terms of the the kind of peril that were that they face at this point. If they if they if they get this wrong, and when you talked about the fact that Not the if, politicians, it's wet, it's wet. well, it's wet. No, I no, I I, I totally you're, agree you're with damned that. Damned no matter and, what happens, because we're going into inflation. Yeah, and, and that's exactly where I'm going with this because. Um, you know, we, we, you talk there about the fact that the, the policies are always going to want easy money, and that's absolutely right, until their constituents start writing to them complaining about inflation, right? And that's the point. And I, and I spoke to um, our friend Pippa Malmgren about this recently, mm-hmm. and she brought this back up in the, in the 70s, exactly what happened. Constituents are writing to their congressmen saying, cost of living, cost of living, and that's what precipitated Volcker doing what 
Volcker ultimately had to do because he had congressmen calling him. So this brings us around to this whole inflation narrative, right? And the, and the, the transitory nature of it or otherwise. So when you look at what the Federal Reserve have been shoving down everybody's throats as hard as they can, which is this, the transitory word, transitory transitory. They've been doing that for you know, almost two years now. They seem to be backing off that a little bit now. The data Expect suggests it that- Expect to be transitory. Expect- Exactly right. When you pass the body language and the, and the verbal language that you're seeing coming out of Federal Reserve governors now, what's your take on what's going on inside the Fed with regards to this transitory inflation narrative? So you've got um, you've got a Jay Powell who thought he could stand by the maximum inclusive employment mandate and throw inflation out the window. So you've got Jay Powell who he had his script memorized, and because that sounded great, that was politically optic, it was fantastic. Yep. Maximum inclusive employment. Back to February 2020, we want a 3.5%, but we want that rate to be the same for Hispanics and Blacks, period. So that was his story. He was sticking to it. Well, now you've got this Deloitte and Touche survey out that says, you know, high-income Americans plan to spend 15% more this holiday season, especially on fancy trips, because they're richer than they've ever been. Right. Oh, and by the way, lower income Americans plan to spend 22% less this holiday season because they're getting eaten alive by inflation. It's a regressive tax and it's killing these people. Oh, and by the way, Flippy, who makes French fries, his buddy who's flipping hamburgers behind him at the at the White Castle south of Chicago, and their other, they're the third friend up front, the kiosk who's taking the order. These jobs are being automated out of existence. Mm-hmm. I've got 120,000 miles under my belt this year. I've been to quite a few hotels in America. When you check in, their standard line is, due to COVID precautions, your room is only going to be serviced every third day. And our yep. algorithms suggest to us that you're not going to stay here beyond a third night, which means you're never going to get service. Actually, they don't say the second part. But but the point is... It's implied, yeah. It, well, if you look at the growth rate of... if you If you look at the hours worked among people who wash linens for hotels, hours work has crashed versus hours work for people inside hotels. My man, my dear friend of mine for 20 years who runs a resort in Maine, she is, she is taking sheets off of mattresses every day of her life. She, she's the manager of this resort. So hours worked among hotel employees has increased. Hours worked among people who wash the linens professionally mm-hmm. has crashed. The profitability, the, the cost savings, it's just like Deloitte and Oliver Wyman and, and McKinsey. The straight to the bottom line profit for not having their consultants on the road five days a week at the Four Seasons flying business class, the pump up to their bottom line is so massive that they're they're going to baby step it back for people who pitch a fit and really want them there, but it's never going back to what it was. Sure, yeah. And hotels are never going to give those cost savings back. And I went off on this tangent to say that not only are the lowest income individuals getting eaten alive by inflation, there are fewer jobs out there for them. And so Powell's maximum inclusive employment goal 
was clearly questioned by the most confrontational press conference you've seen in years. Yeah, absolutely. Reporters who are normally like pussycats and they're like, what kind of a softball can I give you today, Chair Powell? And it's all sweet and nice and wonderful. And let's hear from Nick from the Wall Street Journal first. Anyways, all of that went by the wayside. Do you not understand, Chair Powell, what inflation is doing to hardworking Americans? Do you not understand what $4 and presumably going to $5 a gallon gasoline is doing? Do you not understand what 25% increase in heating costs is going to be this winter? Have you been to the grocery store in Chevy Chase lately? Have you noticed that the, that the price of flank steak has doubled? Has anybody noticed anything that's hurting the average American? And right now, that's what Congress people are hearing. So the Fed internally is saying, we might be forced to hurry up, finish the taper and tighten really quickly inside of a vacuum while the economy is slowing. So, so let, right well, let's, un let's unpack that because as you say, right, what you, I think you're right when you talk about when we reach this problem because we're heading there no matter which way they cut this. Um, the, the, as I said the other day to Julian Brickton, the, the, the eye of the needle they've got to thread is so tiny now it's impossible. So let's talk about if they do what you just said they'll have to do, which is tighten because things get out of hand. Surely at a stroke, all this credibility they've spent 25, 30 years building up is gone. And if that credibility is gone, what else is there? What do they build the Federal Reserve upon after that's gone? That's when you go to the nuclear option. That's when Janet Yellen comes in. Oh, and by the way, when they go to tighten, we're already seeing signs that inventories are being rebuilt because Companies have freaked out. They've gone from just in time to just in case. Mm -hmm. So you're already seeing inventories rise in the background. So just when Powell's, when a portion of Powell's transitory narrative is coming true, they're going to tighten into that. So good luck with that. Right. So just when he's proven right, he's going to be hiking rates. So it's going to be even worse. But what you're talking about, that's when Janet Yellen steps in. And that's when Lael Brainerd being in a position of chair might have had an import of magnitude that could call into question the sanctity of the dollar's reserve currency status. How so? Join those thoughts for me. So if you have the right individuals in place, and of course, Congress is going to vote for whatever, whenever, it doesn't matter if, you know, if the peanut butter is hitting the fan, they'll vote anything in. That's when the entire GOP comes together and says, it's a matter of national security. China has its own central bank digital currency. We've switched our narrative. For purposes of national security, we must also have our own central bank digital currency, which, by the way, there are arguments to be made for that. But that's when the narrative switches with the conservatives. And all of a sudden, they're like, oh, crap, we're in recession. And it looks like we're in a deep recession. And it looks like the Fed's credibility is gone. And the last time we were in recession, we had to pump 42.3% of GDP into the veins of direct deposited into the veins of Americans higher than World War II. Had to be a double-barreled monetary fiscal barreled approach to address what was happening because the credit markets are in a shambles. They're now, you know, they've gone from 10 trillion February 19th, 2020 to 11 and a half trillion today. Your junk bond market, high yield bonds, leverage loans just passed a $3 trillion milestone. So that thing could erupt and the Fed could not rescue it solely. So that's when you have Janet Yellen come in and say, we've got a 13-3 moment here. This is a new kind of emergency. We're going to need to roll out universal basic income, and we're going to need to do it in a hurry. 
Well, that's you know that 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 brings us to this this situation where they've got to do something, and at this point there just aren't any good options for them because as you said, right? They can't they can't really raise rates because the damage that does is almost incalculable because the entire financial system is now predicated upon and reliant upon low rates forever, right? The amount of companies that can't roll over the debt, it's it's chaos. But before they get to those sweeping changes that you just talked about, what about things like yield curve control? What about things like mandatory treasury purchases by pension funds? Are we going to see kind of piecemeal attempts to try and do anything but get to UBI, or are they going to be forced to go straight there? Well, you will see central clearing of treasuries. That will happen. And again, the, you know, uh, the Chinese probably don't like it at all that the group of 30 released this paper, but China's part of that group and it's officially been, you know, blessed by the group of 30, therefore it can proceed. So there will, there will be stopgap measures that are that are there and in place. As long as our interest rates remain positive some way, somehow, nominally, they'll still have appeal. Uh, so uh, there are indeed measures that can be taken in between, you know, Armageddon and, but I think you're seeing interest rate volatility stubbornly defy that of the VIX mm-hmm. of stock market volatility for a yeah. very good reason. Because I think that the I think that the rates market is starting to sniff out how small the size of the needle is that you just pointed out. So there's a couple of other kind of pieces to this jigsaw that, that you've put together so beautifully. And oh, the um, debt ceiling. <laughs> yeah, let, let's let, let's come. We got we got that to talk about. We got Mitch McConnell to talk about. There's 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 other things that have a role that I, I think most people struggle to join these dots. But you're experience helps you do that. So let, let's lay those out and why they're so important for people and how they fit into the narrative. So there was an emergency federal open market committee in uh, in 2013. 2011, of course, we came as close as we have to a country to defaulting on our debt. Standard & Poor's downgraded the AAA uh, credit standing in the United States. The S&P 500 fell 17 percentage points. The benchmark 10-year treasury fell 120 basis points. Cats moved in with dogs. It was just chaos. But this brinksmanship over the debt ceiling continued throughout 2012 and 2013. So in 2013, because at that point, the Federal Reserve owned a few treasuries, there was an emergency Federal Open Market Committee convened. Ben Bernanke was there. My former boss was there. I was still inside the Fed there. I just interviewed uh, Charlie Plosser about this for my show. He was there. And a, a, a blueprint was drawn up. So let's just say that the United States defaults on its debts, which, by the way, Mitch McConnell has made 46 GOP senators have signed a petition vowing to not raise the debt ceiling. The Senate parliamentarian who dictates how legislation can be made has said that via reconciliation, pure 50-50 vote along party lines, the debt limit cannot be suspended. It must be raised meaning the Democratic Party would have to own the nearly $7 trillion, put their name on it. And separately, McConnell has said to Schumer, and then he put it in writing to the Biden administration in a memo the next day, he said the only reason that the Democrats were saying that they could not raise the debt ceiling via reconciliation in their, in their social spending bill was because they didn't have enough time. Right. So as of October the 15th, the 14th, excuse me, when this was signed into law, 
That's when McConnell sent the memo to the Biden administration and said, you have the time that you have asked for. Right. You have ample time to resolve all of these matters via reconciliation. If you come knocking on December the 3rd for another 480 billion stopgap measure while I'm headed into midterms looking to roast your asses, the answer is going to be no. Okay, that other that I inserted that part. That was anyways. So but he said on December 3rd, the answer will be no. And so you have Yellen fighting to keep Powell in position. In 2013, Powell said such a route would be loathsome. He used the word loathsome. Loathsome, yeah. That the Federal Reserve would be would be recruited to strategically to be the conduit through which to strategically default on treasuries. Now Jim Bianco does a great job of tallying up. Right now he says we own a that the Federal Reserve owns a third of all treasuries. So you're Joe Q Xi Jinping, you're Joe Q Calpers, and you've, you're sitting on a defaulted treasury. And so the Fed's got this standing repo facility. It can take in unlimited amounts of collateral as long as they're proper treasuries or mortgage-backed securities agencies. Mm-hmm. So the Federal Reserve says, swap it with me overnight, just overnight until they resolve their differences in Washington. Because we're the United States of America, this is the risk-free asset on planet Earth. You know, we're, we're certainly going to resolve this debt ceiling at some point. They're going to come together, these two parties. Mitch McConnell's going to be like, you play that overnight game all the way through the midterms. Play it, play it, play it. So overnight, you keep swapping out good treasuries for bad, using the Fed's facilities. The blueprint has been drawn out since 2013. And boy, do you think that Janet Yellen wishes that that document did not exist. But would Lael Brainerd play ball with this, rolling this out? Or would Jay Powell, the man that Yellen's put herself behind? Yeah. And who understands the financial markets better, by the way? Private equity, hedge fund, investment banking. Oh, by the way, who facilitated Solomon Brothers back in the day when Warren Buffett was stepping in in the Treasury scandal, who was under secretary of the Treasury at the time? Oh, that would be Jerome Powell. So somebody with an understanding of the financial markets, they might even bring Mnuchin back in just quietly, you know, just to help get them through the process of strategically defaulting on the U.S. debt. But it can be done. And Mitch McConnell, who's read my work, thank you, knows that it can be done. And the midterm elections are critical. So at this point, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi should understand that between now and December 3rd, they're going to have to make this spending bill small enough to be acceptable by Cinema and Manchin and the other moderates. They're going to have to make it small enough and not green enough. The progressives are going to their heads are going to blow up. I'm wearing green today for a reason. I, I, I do want to save the planet. I recycle. I hug trees often. But you're going to have to make it acceptable enough within the Democratic Party, plus the seven trillion dollar increase in the debt ceiling that then the entire GOP gets to fire their public relations advertising agencies. They no longer need commercials. All they have to do is get up at the stump and say, 
The Democrats individually raised the U.S. debt by $7 trillion. They own it 100%. It's theirs. They signed their name to it. And then they added another $2 trillion, just for good measure. And who has a sweeping victory in the midterms? So Jay Powell, Lael Brainerd, Randy Quarles, Rich Clarida, Wall Street, Jamie Dimon, his massive control over the repo market, Mitch McConnell, the midterms. I, I wrote a piece recently because I, I have a Ted Lasso fascination, you know. You Football is life. Football is life. I gave a speech recently in New Orleans. It's actually going to hit pretty soon here. And I said, politics is economics. And the last time you and I were on a panel together, nine months ago, we yep. both said the same thing. We don't want to talk about politics in America. That's not what we learned how to do in our class training. That's not what we learned how to do throughout our careers. But it's the reality. And I think that that's where we are today, Grant. Yeah, it is reality. And that brings us to, I guess, the big question about the Fed, and that's its purported independence. You know, Um, (laughs) in a world where politics is economics, is it even possible for a central bank to remain independent? It seems to me, arguably that it isn't anymore because the political decisions and those of a responsible central bank are not only not aligned, they're directly opposed with each other right now. So, so you know, how, how bad is this independence in the central bank now? And should we just give up on the pretense? Well, I think we should have given up on the pretense. Janet Yellen's first day in office, she, you know, she was asked, <laughs> she was like, well, Hey, way back in 2017, you, you seem to think that the debt was a, a big deal. And she said, well, I did then. I don't deny it. But our interest expenses, you know, servicing the, the debt is lower than it was in 2021 versus 2017. So who cares? And I'm like, you've just said that institutionalizing the politicization of the Fed is A-OK. Because that was what she said. Yeah, absolutely. As long as you can minimize the cost of servicing the U.S. debt and employ the Fed to to monetize every last cent of of debt, then having a discussion around central bank credibility and independence is is kind of, well, I mean, we could if you want, but it might be a waste of time. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it, it seems that way, but the world we live in now is one where image is everything. Right. And, and everyone, everyone is concerned with image. And that that's really at this point, it seems to me what the Federal Reserve is now fighting for is their image amongst, let's face it, an alarmingly small group of people who really understand what it's all about. You know, the people that they're working for, supposedly, don't really understand this because it's way too arcane for them. Yep. And the people who do understand it are almost cheering them on to be duplicitous because it keeps... The, the, the whole charade going, right? It keeps the lights so, on on Wall Street. I right. Mean, so that's so what how does that right? resolve itself, do you think, ultimately? Because uh, something's got to give somewhere. Well, again, you know, winter is coming, and I hate to use that cliche, but you've legislated away a gigantic piece of the small business sector. Yep. Hardworking Americans who had small businesses who were passed over in favor of becoming a big box nation that's that's really run by monopolies out of Silicon Valley. Let's get straight. There's no antitrust in America. It's it's poof. I mean, Rockefeller is giggling in his grave. So um, small businesses have been slayed. The lowest income earners, you know, we, we did the calculation a few days ago. We think that there have probably been 
uh, because automation has been expedited to the extent that it has. And if you look at labor costs right now, in fact, we're writing about this this week. If you look at labor costs as a percentage of GDP, they've been stagnant in a post-COVID world, uh, which is shocking uh, given all all this wage wage inflation fury. If you look at at what companies are investing in R&D, IT, any anything remotely related to robots, um, if you look at outsourcing, I mean, your typical law library is now a piece of big data. You can have a paralegal anywhere you want on planet Earth as long as yeah. you can get the lowest. So, but anyways, labor costs as a percent of, G- of GDP have stayed constant, and you've seen this massive increase as a percentage of GDP. We're talking all the way back to 1993 when Intel introduced the chip. If you look at those costs, they're higher than they were in the 90s or the 2000s right now. That's how quickly companies are automating employment out of existence. So I think you've probably got 4 million people at least who are going to be kicked out of the labor force, who are getting eaten alive by inflation at the same time, who are not going to get any direct stimulus spending prior to the midterms. Mm -hmm. And a year is a long time for such a large swath of Americans to frankly be suffering. And something will have to give. And I like to think that it's it's going to be something that happens within the populace, within our society. Because we do know that politicians are malleable. But you know, I, I go back to the example of the Banque de France. At some point, I think Americans are gonna connect some dots and realize that either the Fed and their politicians are their enemy or just their politicians are their enemy. They might not connect the dot all the way back, but my Twitter feed suggests that there are quite a few people who, who blame the Fed. Yeah. And social media is a powerful animal. Well, it's, it's a powerful animal and it's a very dangerous animal, you know, and we're, we're starting to see the, the recent John Deere standoff, you know, and, and I was chatting with Julian Brinkton about this the other day. It's, it's the first time that either of us had seen a wage demand confrontation get thrown back by the workers who were promised the kind of raises they haven't seen in years, and they both said, screw you. The CEO has been making out like a bandit. The board has been making out like bandits with their share price for years, good times or bad. We want ours. And that's that's the thin end of a very, very dangerous wedge for an awful lot of people. If that's the mentality that's starting to creep in, and that's the understanding that, you know, the rich have gotten so much richer now that we want ours. That's just an extra complication that whether you're a politician or a central bank governor, it's tough to think of a viable solution to that as a problem. It is. And again, the irony here is that they might also be hardball negotiating into a vacuum because the heart of the negotiation, the faster the pace of automation, you know, it's I, I, I there are two ironies recently. One is that that Biden actually said out loud that this infrastructure bill that we've just passed is going to create more union jobs. So I'm like, we've just had the president of the United States say that we're going to purposely waste taxpayer money. I'm like, well, that wasn't good optics. That's just that's that's not good for the midterms. He shouldn't have said that. And and then there was the 24 seven 90 day sprint. So you've got the people at the ports. So you talk to a trucker in America, Mm -hmm. you got to wait three hours to get into the port. 
You've got to wait three hours inside the port to get the container loaded. And you've got to wait three hours to get outside the port. And by the way, it's on your dime. Yep. So being a trucker, and, and by the way, oh, the aesthetic laws in Long Beach don't allow for any more than two, two containers to be stacked at a time because it makes the view of the beach uglier. Right. So they, they're these cute little local laws. So Biden is at the, at the podium and I'm not making a political statement. I'm just making there are certain dumbass things people can say. So he's at the podium talking about we're going to have this 90 day sprint to save Christmas. Not that we can get the truckers in and out of the ports in time to do it, even if we could. But we're going to have this 90 day sprint and everybody who's working at the ports, they're going to all go 20, run three shifts. It's going to be a thing of beauty. He might as well have been wearing Chris Kringle's damn uniform when he was at the podium by them. When does their contract come up? Except for June 30th of 2022. What's in their contract? What are they starting to negotiate for today? And I'm not taking anything off of these hardworking individuals at the ports. I'm not suggesting that they're not busting their asses. But they're not just asking for everything that the people at John Deere just said no to. They're not asking for that. They're, well, they are asking for that, it, it, but in a bigger way. They're the highest paid union employees in the country, by the way. Right. The, the port workers. They're asking for automation to be stopped. Right. June 30th. You tell me when this supply chain disruption is going to end. Yeah, interesting. Anytime soon. Yeah, that's a great Heading point. Heading into June 30th negotiations with the workers at the ports. And that's why even if companies end up with more inventory on their hands than they need, it might not be the right kind of inventory. It might still be sitting out in the ocean. And China's just like, you know, hey, we just had, you know, licking their chops. We just had a record trade surplus. Woohoo! Because we're not generating domestic consumption, but we sure as hell are sticking it to the Americans. And that's what you get, Trump, for starting this trade war. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, we make 89% of containers in the world, China. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let, let me finish with a question. It's not often I, I ask a question that I know someone is 95% guaranteed not to answer. But let me ask you this. As we've gone through this conversation and as I've spent time with you in private talking about all this stuff, it strikes me that if anyone was perfectly suited to run for some kind of office to try and change all this, it would be one Danielle DiMartino Booth. Now, you're the proper I, shade of red, by the way. You're the proper shade of red asking this question, Grant. Yeah. Well, listen, I, 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 I just, it just feels like it's a question that needs to be answered. And you can say no comment all you want, but it, but it just hypothetically, let's think hypothetically, would you ever even think about stepping into this to try and do something about it? Because it's, I mean, in all, in all seriousness, it strikes me as something that you would be very well positioned to try and do. So I'm going to answer your question and really surprise you. The short answer is hell no. You couldn't. My walk-in <laughs> walk closet cannot hold all of my skeletons. Okay. All right. Okay. I just admitted it. But that's not the point. I've actually begun to take steps, and I believe fully in the fact that the that the country has a constitution, and that changes can be made. Remember when I was saying the people, the people mm -hmm. at some point, the people. Imagine a world with no collective bargaining. Think about what teachers' unions did to working parents in America in the post-pandemic era. Think of a world without collective bargaining. Think of a world with term limits. Think of changes that can be made to the US Constitution. If you had somebody with a loud enough voice, not a politician, but somebody with a loud enough voice, like an Andrew Yang maybe, who could bring two thirds of the population together to say, okay, that 13% approval rating in Congress, can we turn that into term limits can we mm -hmm. add that to the Constitution? Those teachers unions who screwed you, the people on the ports 
who decided to play hardball and canceled Christmas. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. Let's get rid of collective bargaining. Let's take these two elements that have corrupted American politics and robbed the American people of their voices. Let's get rid of them. Let's make sure that the average age of a U.S. senator isn't pushing into the 70s. Is that representative of the U.S. demographic profile? No, it's not. So I think that a time could come in America where if a third party is not feasible, you could change the Constitution for the better to make politicians in America work harder for the American people like Pat Toomey because they know that they've committed to term limits and that they're leaving and that therefore they can be a member of Congress with integrity and do their damn jobs. So that's your answer. Listen, amen to that. And, And whether you like it or not, skeletons or not, you better hope that doesn't get played far and wide, that clip, because you're going to have a lot of people knocking on your door. Well, Danielle, listen, I'd vote for you, skeletons or none. uh, I would vote for you very, very happily. And maybe that's a whole new podcast series we can do, Skeletons with Danielle DiMartino-Boo. Yeah, yeah. except that'll be for the, like, whatever you have, gold, platinum, That'll yeah, there you go. We're, we're, your carbon we'll make, members, only, only your yeah, we'll make that, diamond members. That'll, that'll be a late night podcast. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll figure it out though. Listen, thanks so much for doing this. I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been way too long since we've had a chance to do this. But for, for anyone foolish enough to not be kind of following your work, let them know the easiest way to do that because it's it's great and, and more people should be listening to it. Uh, please hop on quillintelligence.com. You know, we have a very reasonably priced product for your retail investor and we're in the process of rolling out QI Pro, which I think is the best institutional research on, on the street and off the street for that matter. So quillintelligence.com, go visit. Fantastic. And vote DiMartino Booth whatever year she finally gets badgered into running. <laughs> Pandora's box is officially open. All right, thanks, Danielle. I'll see you soon. Thank you. Take care, Grant. Well, I promised you an enjoyable conversation and I think Danielle delivered that in spades. Her understanding of the players involved here and the way the Federal Reserve functions are absolutely unmatched amongst financial commentators. So I got to say, I found that conversation enormously helpful in understanding the dynamics shaping what might happen from here, both in terms of the political influence being brought to bear on the Fed and the personalities at the forefront of this particular discussion. That's all from me for another episode. I'll be back again soon with another stimulating conversation. Until then, my thanks to you for listening. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.